Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. A few days ago, Governor Mike DeWine held one of his regular coronavirus updates and said a lot of people are not taking the vaccine when offered it, especially staff members at nursing homes. We'll have his comments in a moment. A school teacher in Dublin has done a lot of work over a lot of years with the help of his students to get the bullfrog recognized in Ohio. Its likeness will even be available to put on Ohio license plates soon. I'll talk to that teacher in just a few minutes. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Karina Nova has more information about the vaccine and an inspiring story of a man who beat his heroin addiction. And I'll wrap up the hour talking to a Cleveland Clinic doctor about strokes. Governor Mike DeWine said a few days ago that it looks like only about 40% of staff members at nursing homes around the state are opting to take the coronavirus vaccine, along with about 80% of the residents. Some hospital staff are also deciding not to take it. Here's about six minutes of the governor's comments about the situation. Let me talk for a moment now uh, to those who are receiving the shots. I want to talk a little bit to my fellow Ohioans who are in that position today. First of all, this is your choice. Um, we believe that medical science clearly shows that uh, it's the right thing to do, that it is, um, if you weigh any risk that might be there versus the gain, that the gain far, far outseeds the risk. And I think every professional has, has said that. But we ask you not to listen to me, I'm not a doctor, but rather to listen to the doctors and listen to the health professionals in regard to that. Um, one thing I would caution uh, everyone who is in group 1A and who has offered the opportunity to, to get that shot, um, again, it comes back to uh, a sense of urgency. Um, we cannot guarantee if you pass that up, there's no guarantee when you're going to have an opportunity to do that again. And let me just give a couple of examples. Um, nursing homes, uh, nursing home staff, and, and residents of nursing homes. The way the federal government set this program up is that the pharmacy company that is vaccinating on the, our behalf will make three stops to each nursing home. Three different dates they will come into that nursing home. The first date, they will vaccinate everyone who wants to be vaccinated, staff, residents. They will come back on a second date, three weeks or so later, and they will give the second vaccine to those who got it the first time. They also, at that point, will see if there's anyone else who wants that vaccine in the nursing home. After that, if you don't get your first shot, then we can't guarantee you when you'll be able to get that. I mean, it's for example, let's take a 35-year-old who is in a nursing home or who works in a nursing home. If they don't take that shot on that second occasion, you know, they may come into it simply a different category, and it may be a matter of months before they have the opportunity to do that. So again, this is everyone makes their own choice about this, but we just want to make it clear that that opportunity may not come back uh, for a while. Now, our goal ultimately is to offer this to everybody in the state of Ohio, but we know that's going to take months. And so just a kind of a word of caution uh, in regard to that. Uh, the same way would be with, obviously, with health care staff. 
uh, that opportunity again may not come back, or at least we cannot guarantee that. Let me talk a moment about nursing home residents. Uh, we've had a large number of nursing home residents who are taking the vaccine. We think anecdotally uh, it's roughly 80%. Uh, and so vast majority of people in nursing homes are taking that. Uh, I would speak now to family members who have someone in a nursing home. Uh, unless there is some reason that person, uh, your loved one should not get the vaccine. Um, you know, again, you might want to talk to them uh, and urge them to do that. Again, it's their individual choice whether they get the vaccine or not. But again, missing that opportunity, there's no guarantee when that will occur. It could occur in a few weeks, but we just, we just don't know. Um, so again, taking that opportunity uh, is really, I think, uh, is a very wise thing to do. Uh, let me talk for a moment to our nursing homes uh, who are doing so much and uh, try to work hard to keep COVID out of the nursing homes. Very, very difficult to do when we have great spread in, in, in the community. Well, now the vaccine is, is here. Um, when you are called to schedule, and it's really a scheduling issue by one of the pharmacy companies, we would just ask you when they give you a date, do everything in your power to make, make that date. Uh, again, because that keeps, enables us to continue to vaccine, vaccinate people at, at a high rate. And again, if you don't take that date, you know, they will push you back to another date and they'll come. But again, you're losing that period of time when you could have had the first vaccination and then three weeks later, the second vaccination uh, in the arms of anybody in your nursing home who wants that. Um, so just, just some, some things to think about. Uh, every week on Tuesday, uh, we are told uh, the amount of the uh, vaccine that is coming. Uh, so, so on Tuesday, yesterday, we were told that 69,500 doses of Moderna uh, will be coming in to the state next week. Uh, Pfizer, uh, first dose, 70,200. And also uh, from Pfizer, the second dose, the allocated to people who are getting a second dose, 98,475. Uh, so that is what will be coming in um, next week. Governor Mike DeWine said this past week he's concerned about people not getting the vaccine that are eligible to receive it now. Uh, I don't have data in front of me, but anecdotally, it looks like we're at four, somewhere around 40% of staff in nursing homes is, is taking the vaccine, 60% are not taking it. Again, that's my message today, you know, just urging people, not gonna compel anybody to do it, but urging people to take, take that vaccine. It's very important. So that's, you know, if you, you know, wish that they had a higher compliance and our message today is train may not be coming back for a while. And, and you know, we're gonna make it available to everybody eventually, but um, this, is the, this is the opportunity for you and you should really think about it, uh, about, about getting it. Governor Mike DeWine from a coronavirus update this past week.
Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and thanks for listening. Hey, this is Kevin Love from the Cleveland Cavaliers. At times, life can feel scary, which can leave us hurting and feeling overwhelmed with anxiety. Now, more than ever, we need to be kind to ourselves, kind to our mental health, and find some time and space in these tough times. Mindfulness is something that's helped me, and I hope it can help you too. My nonprofit is partnering with Headspace to offer you free content that can ease those feelings of anxiety. It's as easy to do as this. Take a big, deep breath, in through the nose, out through the mouth. In, and out. Just breathing. In, and out. Head to kevinlovefund.org slash headspace and be kind to your mind. Neil Armstrong waited six hours and 39 minutes to step onto the surface of the moon. Jackie Robinson waited 20 months to play his first game with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And even DiCaprio had to wait 22 years to win an Oscar. You can wait until your destination. Don't text and drive. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. This next segment on Columbus Perspective aired just a couple of months ago, but it's so unusual we thought we'd air it again. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Sean Kaser, who is a social studies teacher at Grizel Middle School in Dublin. How are you? I'm great, thanks. This is, uh, I think, a wonderful story because uh, it, it's about getting kids involved in the legislative process and environmental issues, all kinds of stuff, and it actually is something that started with you a long time ago. That's right. Back in 2002, my students uh, were thinking about the state symbols that we have. It was kind of a fun Friday activity, and they had pointed out that we didn't have a state amphibian or any kind of amphibian on the list. We had mammals, we had a bird, we had an insect and a reptile, but there was no amphibian on the list. So I just challenged them, you know, how can we, how can we change this? So we began this journey of uh, figuring out how to make a law, right? That's, that's how every state symbol got to be on the list. Uh, it has to be a law that is passed by the Ohio General Assembly and signed by the governor. So we started this process up back in 2002 with a bullfrog. Uh, that's the amphibian we chose to be a state symbol. Uh, the kids were, you know, kind of trying to decide which one should be our state symbol, and we decided for it to really work, it needed to be a, an amphibian that was found in all 88 of Ohio's counties, and it should have great name recognition. And uh, there should be some kind of a connection to it. And in Dublin, where I work, where the kids live, there's uh, every summer there's a big frog jumping contest. And so a lot of them had a connection with that. And there are a lot of small towns across Ohio that would do that in the summer. 
so they decided on the bullfrog. So we started uh, writing letters and, and calling uh, state representatives and state senators, seeing if they would sponsor a bill that would name the bullfrog as a state symbol. And this is, uh, it's neat because I'm sure that the kids and probably you along the way were frustrated with how uh, slowly the wheels can turn on things like this, but eventually you got it done. Yeah, I, you know, it's really, it's kind of a two-edged sword because for me as a teacher, I wanted them to learn about the process. And this process is designed to be slow. It's designed to have gridlock in it. You know, there's supposed to be debate and discussion. And as I would tell the kids, you know, you know, it's not slow, a king making every decision. That's fast. But in our system, we want to hear input and discuss it and debate it. And so I know the kids would get frustrated when we wouldn't just get it done overnight. But for me, it was a good lesson for them to learn is that it takes a while and it's designed to be slow. And it ended up taking us about eight years to get this thing passed. We would get so far and then the legislature would break and there'd be a new election and we have to start all over with a new group of lawmakers. So it was about an eight, eight year journey, 2010, I think is when it was passed and signed by the governor. Yeah, so that's at least four sessions of the General Assembly. Uh, were, were there times along the way where it got close uh, and, and then just ran out of time? Yep, there were times we got really close. And, you know, we started this, we figured, like, who could be against this? It seems like it's just so, such a non, non-issue, non kind of a no-brainer. But you'd be surprised how many lobbyists literally showed up in suits, lawyers who would come and testify against having the bullfrog. Um <laughs> Uh, because they would say things like, you know, the bullfrog is an invasive species. Uh, and then, of course, the kids would say, well, so are you. You know, pretty much everybody in this room is an invasive species. <laughs> so there'd be that kind of discussion back and forth for a while. And then some other kids near the Cleveland area, they wanted to name the spotted salamander as an amphibian because it wasn't a predator. It was kind of uh, pretty bland and white bread and didn't really, you know, eat any other thing like bullfrogs sometimes would eat other frogs, so there was, you know, that debate about how it was a cannibal at some point. So, you know, it's great science discussion, uh, and the kids are always learning, but we'd get really close, and then, ah, uh, we'd have to start all over. Yeah, uh, that's, uh, I can understand the frustration. So, uh, when it passed then in, in 2010, I guess you probably had some long-gone students by then who were following up on that and becoming interested in it again as adults. Yeah, I mean, I would think most of them are pretty much out of college at that time, by the time it actually passed, or in college. Um, so I'd hear back from them occasionally, like, yeah, it's so great. You know, we did have to work out a compromise where we became the state frog, uh, and we got the credit for the idea, which was cool. And we figured we would always win the name battle anyway. I mean, if you ask anybody on the street uh, what our state amphibian is, they're probably going to say the bullfrog, even though technically we are the state frog. <laughs> Uh, I think we win the public relations battle every time on that one, and uh, that was a good lesson for the kids as well. Uh, and at the time, we were the only country in the, our only state in the country that had a uh, state frog. But yeah, the kids, when they got through with college, they'd check in and like, I can't believe it passed. That's so great. I remember working on that when I was in middle school, so it was a lot of fun. And that happened in 2010, but uh, it's still going on, right? Right. So even from the very beginning, like the kids were talking about, you know, we should probably get this on a license plate. And I would say, let's well, slow down. You know, we got to get this law passed first. And uh, so that's kind of always been in the hopper about trying to get the bullfrog on a license plate because, you know, you can you can go into the BMB now and get a white-tailed deer or a cardinal on your license plate with a lot of other things. But 
only a few actual state symbols are on the list of things you can choose from. And so in 2000 and might say 19 or so, I basically asked the kids, my current students, do you guys want to pick this up and do Project Bullfrog 2.0, which is where we try to get uh, the state frog, the bullfrog, on license plates, with some of the money going for wetland conservation and education across the, the state. And uh, they're all for it, so we began working on that. And that was a little bit of an easier path because it, the bullfrog was already a state symbol. And it was really a quick and easy way to raise a lot of awareness about wetlands and the environment and, and what we could do. Just a small step to help the environment. And the license plate itself, not yet available, but uh, tell us about that. So I, I'm really excited about the license plate itself because when this happens, when they, when they create a new license plate, you know, the artwork has to come from somewhere, whether it's uh, the white-tailed deer or whether it's, uh, you know, the with God all things are possible. You know, someone had to draw the flag for that license plate. Well, our art teacher here at our school, along with some students, created the artwork for the frog that will be used on the bullfrog license plate. So it's kind of a homegrown uh, art lesson here in the school, and now it's going to be on uh, license plates across the state. Talking with Sean Kayser, he's the social studies teacher at Griselle Middle School in Dublin. This uh, is just so interesting because, you know, I mean, let's face it, social studies usually isn't uh, a favorite for kids (laughs) at about that age. Nothing against you. (laughs) But uh, this is remarkable and wonderful because it gets kids involved in so many different ways. It it can teach them about the legislative process and, and they can be actively involved in it. And also the environment. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of different branches to a story like this. Right. It's not easy to get these kids really engaged um, with government. I mean, I think overall it's hard to get most people to really think about government. And uh, it's, it's a big deal. You know, most, of, most people's lives will be impacted far more by state government than it will ever be impacted by the federal government. Uh, all the things we have to do with the state government, getting a license, a marriage license, hunting license, um, you want to become a, a dentist, you want to become a, uh, a beautician, all of these things are handled by the state. So I'm trying to get the kids to understand how much their life will be impacted by the state. But usually their eyes glaze over when you start talking about how a bill becomes a law and the governor, and they, they don't really seem to be into that too much. But you know what they're into? They're into frogs eating other things in <laughs> class, and they like that kind of stuff. Um, and they like the idea of you know having an impact on the government, and long after, you know, we are out of middle school and they're moving on with life, 20 years from now they might see this license plate and remember what we talked about and remember, the, the, you know, that they got involved in government and uh, they had an impact on the environment maybe. You know, we don't know how it's going to go down. We don't know how popular these will be. But everyone that's bought, some money will go towards educating people about the importance of conserving the wetlands. And, you know, in this election year there seems to be a lot of talk about um, the, the planet and whether or not it's heating up or, or whatever, but no one can dispute the fact that wetlands really do really do help, right? They've got trees and plants that produce oxygen and the wildlife there. It's just a neat ecosystem. So it was a great way to combine uh, the uh, idea of how a bill becomes a law, the legislative process, and uh, life sciences. Yeah, it seems like the kind of thing, like you mentioned, 20 years from now, kids will still be talking about it. And it also, you never know, it could spark interest in a in one of these kids wanting to be a state legislator or something like that i mean are they you said that they testified and they talked to legislators about the bill right so very way back in 
the early time of this, 2002, 2003, we would frequently go to the state house and the kids would have to testify in front of a panel of state senators or a panel of state reps, which it takes a lot to do that. You know, you have to have your ducks in a row. You have to kind of know your topic and you have to be able to be comfortable in front of a group of adults. And I would say most people would be nervous talking to a panel of senators, but the kids were champs. We did the same thing for uh, the Bullfrog license plate. We wrote letters and we talked to people. Uh, the corona, COVID-19, has put a little bit of a damper on some of the stuff we were going to do, but the kids were still involved virtually. Uh, we just kind of were connected to the governor when he signed this uh, bill into law um, this past week. So, I mean, I'm always surprised how these kids can pull it together. I mean, when you think of middle school kids, it's usually like they're squirrely and they don't really got it together. But when they need to, most of them can pull it together when they think they're part of something bigger than themselves and it's just and everyone's kind of looking at them and counting on them. So they usually rise to the occasion. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm going to kind of date myself here, but I remember as a little kid when I was about 11 or 12 years old, I had a project in school of doing some sort of a report on then-Governor John Gilligan. And I didn't have any interest in that kind of stuff, but his name, Gilligan, you know, with Gilligan's Island seemed interest, <laughs> interesting to me. And, and I never forgot, you know, doing that report because it was one of the first types of assignments that I had in school that was government related. Yeah, and I, I just heard back from a student who has worked on Project Bullfrog back in, like, I think, 08, 09, was in middle school. And he now works for the Ohio Secretary of State. He's, he's worked on Governor DeWine's campaign. He's very much into politics. And he remembers all of this kind of being at the state house and doing this. He's kind of interested in it. And so today it's his job. So I, I just feel like it's, it's not for everybody, but there is something for everybody in this lesson. And not everyone's going to go on to have a career in politics and in state government or federal government. But hopefully it'll, everybody will have a little bit better understanding and maybe a little bit of a stronger interest in it because of it. Yeah, I admire the creativity and the and the drive and the work behind it that you did on this. Uh, Sean Kayser again joining us, social studies teacher at Grizel Middle School in Dublin. What's the timeline then for the license plate? Any idea? Well, I just received an email from the registrar of the BMV, and it's usually about a two- to three-month process for them to get the artwork from us and get it all worked out and laid out on a license plate and then uh, ready for the driver's buy. Uh, so I'm thinking probably early spring, the perfect birthday gift for everybody in Ohio who is looking for something to get that someone. Just give them a little extra money to get a bullfrog license plate. It helps the environment. It helps kids. Like, you know, they'll be happy. And uh, and it's great-looking artwork. That's tremendous. Uh, Sean, anything else you want to add? Um, I don't really think so. I'm just happy they got passed. I know the kids are really happy that it's going to be um, around in Ohio. I mean, it would take a law to take this license plate away. So, you know, it may not be the most exciting option of license plates, and it's not for everyone, but I hope even if you choose not to, to buy it, uh, you would, when you look up there and you see it as one of your choices in the BMB, you'll just be thinking about where it came from and all the hard work that the kids put in to get it uh, to be one of the choices. I'm glad it all came to fruition while you were still there. Right. I mean, I was, I mean I've still got uh, several years left before retirement, of course, but... Uh, um, I was starting to wonder because I thought with COVID, everything would shut down. We'd have to restart this whole bill process again after the election. But they actually, they got it done. So I was really happy with uh, Senator Stephanie Kunze and uh, the governor for making it happen. 
Sean Kayser, he's a, a social studies teacher at Griselle Middle School in Dublin. Congratulations again, and thanks for your time today. My pleasure, Dave. Thank you. Roxanne Watson is on a mission. Hello, how are you doing today? She wants more people to register as organ, eye, and tissue donors. Are you an organ donor? Yes, I am. Yay. My goal is to sign up the most people in the United States. <laughs> what drives her? Roxanne's own life was saved through the gift of a heart transplant, made possible by an organ donor. I decided that day that I was going to devote myself to the cause of organ donation and signing people up and honoring my donor by doing that. Now she's back to health, and she's a powerful force, helping to save lives every day through her work. Imagine what you can make possible by leaving behind the gift of life. Eight people can be helped with the major organs, and up to 50 people can be helped with a little bit of everything. And when you think about it that way, that you could help that many people, it's amazing, it really is. Learn more and sign up as an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Go to organdonor.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. If you're worried your friend may be struggling, remember, you don't have to be there to be there. You can say how while you will get a fake tattoo. You can ask with an app if it works for you. You can write him a text or knit him a sweater. If you can't be together, you can write him a letter. Whatever, whatever, whatever gets you You could chat on the game, kick off your flip-flops You could ask on your couch while you binge watch However you do it, you gotta ask a friend And if they don't share, you can ask again Whatever, whatever, whatever gets you talking Whatever, whatever, whatever gets you talking Reach out to a friend about their mental health Learn how you can help at SeizeTheAwkward.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and the Jed Foundation. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10TV, here's Karina Nova from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. Here's Karina. Vaccines distributed to more hospitals in Ohio, but the shipment fell short. What the governor had to say about those thousands of doses that didn't show up. We have two vaccines that received emergency approval. So what's the difference between the two? We'll hear from a local medical professional. And during this pandemic, plasma donations are in need. But are we seeing less and less people willing to give for those in need? We'll verify. Thank you for joining us this morning for Face the State. I'm Karina Nova. Tracy Townsend is off. The COVID-19 vaccine continued to dominate the headlines around Ohio this week. Governor Mike DeWine acknowledged that Ohio is receiving fewer doses of the Pfizer vaccine than originally planned. Ohio will receive more than 70,000 instead of the 123,000 originally planned. The federal government says the estimates were a miscommunication and these doses are the ones that were always planned. Governor DeWine says he's not concerned about fewer doses. This some discrepancies are to be expected in an operation this huge. I, I, you know, my attitude about things generally is, you know, if I can't change them, um, you know, let's ex, let's deal with them. And our job 
the way I see it is to get these out just as quickly as we can in an expeditious manner. Governor Mike DeWine has announced the next group of Ohioans who will be getting the vaccine. On the list, people age 65 and over, people with severe disabilities, and school employees. Governor DeWine didn't give a formal timeline, but said he thinks the vaccines for these next groups would roll out in January or whenever new shipments are received. For schools, the governor says the goal is to get all staff and teachers vaccinated so schools can fully reopen by March 1st. Governor DeWine says children need to be in school learning. We must be able to get them back in school. Now, you know, of course, that CDC has not provided this vaccine can go to anyone 16 or, or under. Um, but the goal is to get these kids back in school. Uh, these children are obviously our future. Uh, these children are Ohio's future. We must invest in our future. We must invest in our children. The governor says some children are doing well remotely, but not being in the classroom is taking a toll on others. The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center received its first shipment of the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine and held a vaccination session for healthcare workers. Honestly, just so excited. I'm, I feel really privileged right now to be able to get the vaccine. I know that there are a lot of people who are waiting for it. I have some friends who are um, COVID nurses who have been through a lot through this. And um, I'm honestly just, I'm, I'm really excited and feel really, really lucky. Ohio Health and Mount Carmel received their first shipment. With two authorized vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer, both being used in Ohio, many of you have asked us, what's the difference? 10TV's Angela Reigert breaks it all down for you. Yeah, so there are some similarities here and some differences, but is one vaccine better than the other? Let's take a look. The first thing we have to talk about is how these vaccines work. Traditional vaccines, like the flu shot, they put a weakened or an activated germ into our bodies. But mRNA vaccines are different. They actually teach our cells how to make a protein or even a piece of protein that then triggers an immune response. Our body makes antibodies and we're protected. Now that's out of the way, you should know both Pfizer and Moderna's vaccines are mRNA vaccines and their effect is about the same. Pfizer is at 95%. Moderna is close to that around 94%. So how many doses will you need? The answer is two for both, but the time between those doses is different. For the Pfizer shot, your booster is going to come 21 days after the first dose. Moderna's follows after 28 days. The biggest difference between these two is how they're stored. You see, Pfizer's vaccine has to be really cold, like colder than winter in Antarctica. Moderna's also needs to be frozen, but think of a temperature closer to your freezer at home. So which vaccine should you get? Well, Pfizer's is for people 16 and up. Moderna's is 18 and up. But is one better or even safer than the other? After the FDA does the authorization, the CDC does the final recommendations. And at this point in time, one COVID-19 vaccine is not recommended over the other. There's still a lot that we have to learn. And as time goes on, we may learn that one vaccine performs better, for example, in those that are 65 years old, kind of like we have with the flu shot. When it's time for you to get your vaccine, you're likely going to get a card that tells you which one they used. Now, when you go back for your booster shot, you want to make sure you get the same one. I'm Angela Rigard. Back to you.
President-elect Joe Biden received his first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine in his home state of Delaware. He held a news conference the next day saying he can't wait for that second dose. I had my shot administered in public, and I got a chance to thank all those nurses and docs at Christiana Hospital for what they've been putting up with and doing for so long. I look forward to the second shot, and I have absolute confidence in the vaccine. The president-elect also urged Americans to stay vigilant because the death toll will still rise and it will take months to get everyone vaccinated. Dr. Anthony Fauci got his first dose of the Moderna vaccine. He says while this is a good moment in our battle against COVID, he's urging Americans to... I want people to be more careful. I want them to limit traveling to the extent possible. And when you congregate, try to do it with a limited number of people. Federal officials are reporting record high travel since the pandemic started. Airports nationwide screened more than 4 million air travels travelers between Friday and Monday before Christmas. CVS will administer vaccines at thousands of nursing homes, including ones in central Ohio. Almost 200,000 Ohioans will be eligible. And in just a few weeks, it should be extended to the general public on an appointment-only basis. CVS expects to administer 20 million shots every month. The CDC released who should get the vaccine next. An advisory panel says it should go to people 75 and older, as well as essential workers. That includes teachers, first responders, and grocery store workers. 10TV is dedicated to keeping you up to date with all things related to the COVID-19 vaccine. We put together a tracking team that will track the vaccine as it becomes more available, and we will report any issues that pop up. Health experts say they are in need of plasma. Jason Puckett from our Verify team explains this. We're talking about plasma donations today. Now, there have been a lot of convalescent plasma donations this year, which is COVID-recovered patients donating their plasma to be used as treatment for COVID-19. But the push for convalescent plasma may have actually drawn the focus away from other plasma donations. Our Verify question today, are regular plasma donations down this year? To find out, we spoke with Amy Afontes, the president and CEO of the Plasma Protein Therapeutics Association, or PPTA. So according to the PPTA, yes, regular plasma donations are down this year and the supply is critical. This is really unprecedented in facing um, a critical issue with raw material. And that raw material is human plasma. Afontis explained that convalescent plasma is used to treat COVID patients, but regular or source plasma donations are used for dozens of other conditions like immune deficiencies, bleeding disorders, and some neurological conditions. So one patient uh, relies on 130 donations a year. If you have primary immune deficiency, if you have alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, um, and you rely on a plasma-derived therapy, you need 900 donations a year. So you can see this is these are very resource-intense therapies, relying on one plasma donation at a time. According to Afontis, the supply of plasma is also suffering because it takes 7 to 12 months to process donations and turn them into therapies. But you can imagine in the patient community the anxiety they're feeling, recognizing that there's been declines in plasma, donation and that there is this seven to 12 month lag. So there is a concern about the ability to meet patient clinical need. So bottom line, yes, regular or source plasma donations are down so far this year. That's verified. The solution, 
more donations. Plasma centers are up and running and they urge you to consider donating if you're able. You can find more resources for how to donate plasma on our website or at donatingplasma.org. With your Verify, I'm Jason Puckett. Well, the big question at the state house: will the governor sign the Stand Your Ground bill? We'll take a look at what lawmakers are saying about this legislation. Striking down House Bill 6 doesn't mean a bigger electric bill. The ruling from a county judge and what the governor wants to see fixed. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Back to Karina Nova, courtesy of 10TV. Welcome back. The big question at the State House: will Governor Mike DeWine sign or veto a controversial bill known as the Stand Your Ground bill? The bill would eliminate the duty to retreat before shooting in self-defense. 10TV's Kevin Landers has reaction from lawmakers. Giving Ohioans the right to use lethal force in an act of self-defense without having to first retreat now rests in the hands of Governor Mike DeWine. I don't know what the governor will do. I hope he vetoes it. I do think that standing your ground and that, that approach and attitude towards self-defense nets out in greater security for everybody. If passed, it makes Ohio the 36th state to no longer require people to retreat before they can justifiably hurt or kill someone with a gun in self-defense. We ended up with so many versions of stand your ground, it got very confusing. Well, if it's confusing to us, what's it to the to the person sitting at home? Under existing Ohio law, people are justified in using deadly force in self-defense so long as they aren't the aggressor and are in their home or vehicle. The amendment would remove the home or vehicle requirement and instead state that the defendant need only be in a place where they lawfully have the right to be. Some believe the bill was pushed through during last-minute votes without proper vetting. You know, this uh, late-hour votes at midnight when members in both caucuses are, are homesick, recuperating from COVID, I mean, that's... That's cooking the books. I was very disappointed by that. Proponents of the measure say it gives law-abiding citizens the right to protect themselves. Others have sharply criticized the bill, saying it would result in more violence and death, particularly against minorities. The concern I have about that bill is the facts are very clear on how it disproportionately affects communities of color. That was terrible. That was Kevin Landers reporting, and 10TV has reached out to the governor's office about his decision, and we have not heard back. DeWine is pushing for other gun legislation. That includes improved background checks, toughen laws on people who've lost the legal right to have guns, and expand the power of courts to temporarily seize guns from people in mental health crisis. Ohio lawmakers just fell short on a, a threat to override a veto from Governor Mike DeWine. Republican lawmakers wrapped up the two-year session last week. The bill DeWine vetoed would limit the health department's ability to fight the pandemic. It would rescind the department's ability to give orders to prevent the spread of contagious diseases. DeWine said the bill would hamstring the state from responding quickly to situations that might require a quarantine, such as a bioterrorism attack. The measure was one of several that Republican lawmakers passed this year, trying to limit the governor's coronavirus protection efforts.
Your electric bills will not start increasing because of House Bill 6. Officials say a Franklin County judge granted a preliminary injunction to stop House Bill 6 from collecting fees. Lawsuits were filed to strike down House Bill 6 as unconstitutional after its role in a federal bribery scheme. Governor Mike DeWine addressed what he would like to see the legislature do to fix this bill. I've made it clear that my preference is a total repeal and a replace uh, because I think that when we looked behind the curtain and saw what was uh, how this bill became law, it, it looked unseemly and it was unseemly and it, it just really kind of stinks up the whole room. In a statement, Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost responded to the ruling saying that it proves the powerful can be held accountable and that corruption will be rooted out. However, the bill itself remains intact. Lawmakers on both sides are frustrated that they've not been able to repeal and replace it because of the bribery scandal behind the law that's already resulted in two people pleading guilty and the former House Speaker Larry Householder charged with racketeering, a charge he's pleaded in innocent to. Governor DeWine signed several bills into law. One creates new school safety policy provisions. Another creates the Rare Disease Advisory Council. Right now, drug overdoses are a big problem in central Ohio. Columbus Public Health reported an increase in emergency department's visits for suspected overdoses. It's an easy path to go down, but a tough path to get out of. 10TV's Angela Reigert talked to one man who is using his experience to help others find a new life. It developed into something far greater. I actually didn't know what I was getting into. Brian Hall says the first time someone offered him heroin, they called it smack. He didn't know what it was. So I said, sure, let me get something. Before I knew it, the guy had my arm extended. He was skin popping me, which is just taking me and injecting it into your arm. He was 14 in junior high. This is where his story starts. Every day I tried it again. I think about the third time I took a liking to it because it seemed to allow me to block out the problems that persisted. Brian describes drugs like fire. He became engulfed. Still, he managed to do okay in school and excel in sports, though it didn't last long. A promising career. I went down the drain, and it was about 40 colleges that were interested in me for football. But uh, I was told by my coach at that time that uh, uh, he would recommend me to his worst enemy because he saw that, you know, I had gone astray and uh, was in a bad way. Matter of fact, on the day that I graduated, I was so high on, uh, on uh, cough syrup that I couldn't even see. And my parents were standing next to me and my grandmother, they were looking at me like, Brad, how could you? He went on to attend college at Youngstown State University. The drugs went too. I played first string as a freshman in a college, but uh, I was still <clears throat> dipping and dabbing, as they say, in drugs after a practice and after classes. And eventually, after one year, I just went back into the streets and left school. Now his mistakes were catching up with him. They wanted to send me away 30 to 60. He ended up serving about 72 days in prison. I know where drugs will take you. I know what they'll make you do. Some people can tell you the moment they hit rock bottom. Things got worse. I became addicted and, uh, and I needed heroin. For Brian, bottom 
went deeper and deeper. It's the expense of a 26 year marriage and six sons. Uh, tore it up and uh, alienated myself, estranged myself and my family. But on April 26, 2001, something happened spiritually to me. Brian's story started again. And I just started to appreciate life and recognize that God loved me, people loved me, and that uh, it was my responsibility to do the things that I needed to do to maintain my sobriety. He found help in Columbus and finally put down the drugs once and for all. It's been a rough life, but I do believe it was a, it's a purposeful life because in my pain, I, uh, I developed a passion. And in that passion came a purpose. Brian now serves as a community outreach coordinator at Primary One Health. His job is to connect those in the chains of addiction to the resources they need. If you're doing your part, because if you do your part, there are people again in the city of Columbus that will help you, uh, that will come to your aid, that will walk with you every step of the way. Next thing you know, one week is turned into two, two a month, a month into a year. And he said, man, I got six months clean. I got a year clean. And you don't have to go back. If you want to learn more about what help is out there for you or someone you care about, go to don'tliveindenial.org. You don't have to memorize it, though. We have a link for you right now on 10tv.com. Just look for this story. I'm Angela Rygard. Back to you. Thanks, Angela. In today's Note of Promise, meet one woman who spent December adapting toys for kids with special needs. 10TV's Krista Frost explains how it's done. Playing with a toy is something many of us wouldn't think about. We just do it. Um, in order to use the ball popper, I've got to like actually do some different things with my hands to make it work. The thing is, not every child can do that. Emily Curtis figured that out years ago while studying engineering at Ohio State. So here's what she's doing about it. You know, open it up, cut whatever seams you need to do, crack open any plastic you gotta, and then just take some wire, your jack, and some solder, put it in parallel, and that's it. It's actually a really simple process. It's called adapting toys, so any child can use it. Program manager of clinical therapies at Nationwide, Lindsay Pauline, explains what this could look like. Um, attach it to their wheelchair, and then they can use the toy to... Um, to or use the switch to um, play a toy. You can hear that I'm um, using that switch and then a toy next to me is activating with it. It's a tool her team uses to help kids in therapy. Information Curtis knows, which is why she posted a video of her adapting a toy to her Instagram every day for 15 days. And it works. I mean, not that a lot of my followers would have this need for an adapted toy, but maybe they know somebody who could use these adapted toys or they could pass the information along. Something she hopes will happen so families can save money and still give their kids the best this holiday. So if I can donate them, you know, why not? That's going to save them a little bit of cost. It's going to make a child really happy. And it really, you know, just fulfills a need. In Columbus, Krista Frost, 10TV News. Curtis was able to donate 24 toys to children at Nationwide. The hospital partners with OSU for the Toys for All Tots initiative. If you're interested in donating, go to nationwidechildrens.org slash giving. We want to thank you all for being with us here today. And remember, it affects you, your family, and Ohio. We're here to make sure to hold those accountable. Thanks for watching Face the State.
That's again Karina Nova, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. You took the first step and quit smoking, but even former smokers may still be at risk for lung cancer. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know about a new low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early. It takes only 60 seconds and could save your life. You took the first step, now take the next. Visit SaveByTheScan.org for a simple quiz to see if you're eligible and talk to your doctor about screening. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Long ago, you wouldn't think of galloping on a horse while doing calligraphy. And you wouldn't have attempted to ride your bike while typing a letter. Yet you think you can safely operate a multi-ton vehicle while texting? Behind the wheel is no place to multitask. If you want to BRB, drive now and text later. Lives depend on it. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, Noise, and the Ad Council. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from silent. Get back on your treatment plan or talk with your doctor to create a plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. Everything's changed. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me is Dr. Shazam Hussein, who is director of the Cerebrovascular Center at the Cleveland Clinic. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for talking to us. We're going to talk about uh, strokes. Tell us uh, a little bit about strokes and, and what they are. Yes, yeah, so a stroke is a, it's a, it's a pretty major health problem, often underappreciated. Uh, a, a stroke basically is a sudden loss of brain function, some kind of vascular cause. Uh, they can be of two types, two main types. One is what we call the ischemic type, where a blood clot or a blood clot can block off a blood vessel and deprive the brain of that blood it so desperately needs. And then the second type is what we call hemorrhagic, where there's actually a burst blood vessel, which can cause bleeding into the brain. Uh, overall, strokes represent, uh, as I said, a major health issue. They're the actual fifth leading cause of death in the United States, uh, actually fourth leading cause in, in Ohio. And and uh, more, perhaps more importantly, they're the leading cause of medical disability, so something we definitely want to be paying attention to. Is it uh, an age-related situation? Yeah, you know, uh, uh, it is true that uh, the number one risk factor is age, which unfortunately we don't have the cure for yet. Uh, all of us have to uh, you know, be, be mindful of that. But uh, I, the other important piece of it, though, is that we definitely... Uh, there are a lot of what we call modifiable risk factors, the things that we can control. And we actually estimate that about 80% of strokes can actually be prevented if we take care of things like blood pressure, uh, cholesterol, and other risk factors. And that's, uh, I was going to ask about that. Is blood pressure the biggest risk? Yeah, if you're talking about risk factors, I mean, of course, we want to take care of all aspects of our health. But if, if you had to pick one from a stroke standpoint, it would be blood pressure. So, Okay. And what about symptoms? Yeah, it's, it's really important to know about symptoms because, uh, you know, what, what we do also know about stroke is that we really have really excellent ways to treat stroke, and time is really, really critical. 
organizations. So uh, we like to use an acronym called BFAST, uh, the B standing for balance, uh, if you have any difficulty with the balance, E standing for eyes, if you have difficulty with your vision, uh, F standing for face, if there's droopiness on one side of the face or the other, A standing for arm, weakness in an arm, uh, you can apply that to the leg as well, uh, S standing for speech, difficulty getting your words out or slurring your words, and then that T is in there to, re again, remind people about this time element, that time is so important in this situation. We estimate that we lose about 2 million brain cells a minute in each situation of a stroke, and so it's really a situation where every minute counts. You know, I remember a few years ago talking with Jackie Mayer, who was a Miss Ohio who had a stroke when she was in her 20s, and she described it as feeling like somebody had poured a glass of ice water over the top of her head. What are the sorts of physical feelings that people have when they have strokes? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's all kinds of people, you know, if you talk to stroke survivors, uh, various experiences that they do have. Um, uh, yeah, what we, what we do know most people, they describe a very, very sudden change in, in their functioning. So they, they suddenly feel that they they can't do something that they had before or other uh, these other experiences. And, and usually, again, these things aren't typically very subtle. It's a very, very dramatic change. So they lose their ability to speak. Uh, suddenly can't move one side of the body or the other. So, and, and this is particularly true. We have, uh, you know, in terms of types of strokes, there's this particular type called large vessel occlusion, emergent large vessel occlusion, or elbow type strokes. These are where we have a really large blood clot that's sitting in a certain blood vessel, and that is really great. It's a very, very sudden change. Uh, oftentimes, the person themselves uh, has difficulty, uh, you know, communicating or being able to express what's happening. But so that's why it's also important for everybody around them to also be aware of these stroke symptoms, uh, which is why it's so important to get that word and education out there. Dr. Shazam Hussein joining us from the Cleveland Clinic, and uh, being treated quickly can have a tremendous impact on how well you recover. Correct, and that, that's why, uh, you know, it's really, as we mentioned, about 2 million brain cells a minute, and uh, it's really led to a really a big push, uh, you know, in, in the stroke field to really talk about how we organize what we call systems of care around stroke. Uh, so, you know, we, we have, as I mentioned, very, very good treatments for stroke. There's a clot buster medication called TPA, uh, which can help to dissolve up blood clots, but again, has a very limited time window, up to four and a half hours. And then for those large vessel occlusion, those elbow type strokes that I had mentioned, uh, there's actually a special, a special catheter treatment that we can do, but uh, this is only available in very, very certain hospitals. So uh, what we're trying to do as a stroke community is really organize, uh, you know, how this stroke care is delivered. In particular, we want to get patients to the right hospital the first time. Um, and that means that we have to work very closely with, uh, you know, our state officials uh, as well as our EMS colleagues. What they do right now when they're identifying a stroke is finding out, you know, is it a stroke or not? Uh, and then they usually get patients to the closest hospital. But what we're really advocating for now and working with the, you know, with some state senators on Senate Bill 302, uh, which would help to uh, have EMS actually identify after identifying is it a stroke or not, identify is this a bad stroke or is it not a bad stroke. And if it is a bad stroke, let's get those patients to the right hospital, a bigger center that has that capability to remove clots out of the blood vessels. When somebody is in the hospital after a stroke, as a doctor, can you get a sense early on as to what kind of a recovery they're going to make? Can be in certain situations, but 
there's also a wide spectrum and people can do really well after a stroke. Uh, a lot of that, again, depends on that early treatment, which is why we really, again, want to emphasize getting people to the hospital. If you have those stroke symptoms, call 911, get those EMS professionals to come and get you, get you to the right stroke center so you can get that life-saving therapy and disability-saving therapy that you might need. For somebody who has not had a stroke, who may be at risk or maybe even if they're not, are, are there any subtle symptoms that they may have been having up to this point that they should be aware of? For, for most people, um, you know, it's usually a pretty sudden event um, so that, that someone develops stroke symptoms initially. Um, however, we do always want to emphasize what we call transient ischemic attacks, TIAs, or the other common term for them is uh, mini-strokes. Uh, these are where someone will have a, just a transient symptom, so they'll develop a little bit of speaking difficulty, maybe weakness on one side, and usually they last a short period of time, maybe up to 10 minutes or, or, or perhaps even up to an hour. In those situations, even though the symptoms have gone away, those could be a warning of a future stroke, and so it, it's as important there that you have to really, you know, you want to get into the hospital immediately uh, to get that checked out. Uh, we do a good evaluation to check the blood vessels, make sure there's no blockages, get a good check of the heart to make sure the heart uh, functioning appropriately and, and check other things. And we know by doing that that we can actually prevent uh, bigger strokes from happening down the line. And, Doctor, I wanted to ask you about any connections from COVID-19 and strokes. Yeah, it's, the COVID situation has been, been interesting. Um, uh, overall, um, in areas where we know that a lot of COVID, uh, you know, um, came into the population, places where there are surges like New York and, and other places, um, the, the COVID it did seem to affect patients, causing a, a thickness of the blood or what we call a hypercoagulable, hypercoagulable state, uh, where they were actually getting larger blood clots. Um, and often this was actually happening in younger patients as well than what you maybe normally would expect. And, and so uh, this has been something uh, you know, the community around the world has been keeping their eye on. Uh, oftentimes when people do uh, get COVID infections or in the hospital, uh, they may be put on you know, stronger blood thinners to help prevent that, that clotting situation. Um, and, uh, you know, again, I think the, the people who do the procedures, particularly removing clots out of the blood vessels, have also been paying close attention to this, looking at the techniques we've been using to try to, you know, help, help reverse that situation if it does arise. Is there anything that people do in their everyday lives that put them in any kind of danger? And I'm thinking, you know, just off the top of my head, things like sleeping at weird angles with their neck or cracking their neck or <laughs> headbanger dancers that shake their heads violently, that kind of thing? Uh, for, for the most part, uh, you know, those normal, you know, I guess day-to-day -day activities for the most part aren't, aren't going to substantially change your risk. Um, uh, we, we do really, again, emphasize, though, that the, the one thing that is uh, very linked to it is, is generally just lifestyle in general. And unfortunately, in, in the United States and uh, in, in Ohio is, is one of the one of the areas of the country where we see this, is that uh, just not leading a healthy lifestyle can increase that risk. So we, we want to make sure that people are you know, eating, eating well, eating a good, healthy diet, particularly watching the amount of salt in the diet, the uh, amount of fatty foods that you're eating in your diet. Uh, exercise is very, very important. Uh, making sure you're getting at least an hour of good physical activity every day. And then uh, you know, smoking, of course, another major risk factor for both heart attack and stroke. Uh, really, I don't think there's any good reason to smoke. And so if you are smoking, you should just quit. Dr. Shazam Hussein, Director, Cerebrovascular Center at the Cleveland Clinic. Anything else you'd like to add? Uh, Uh, if you 
heard this interview, you know, speak to your loved ones about it, speak to people around you so they know those signs and symptoms. And then, uh, of course, again, we're still working through uh, the worker and other state senators around State Bill 301. You know, if a stroke is something that you're interested in, we'd love to have people support to contact your legislator, le- legislatures, uh, asking to support uh, the passage of this bill that will help us to design that really great stroke system of care that we need here in Ohio. Okay, uh, Doctor, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Appreciate it. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.